Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 6, as we follow along with today's lesson. In the 20th chapter, we find Paul meeting with the elders of Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. And there in um, the, uh, he, he speaks to them about being innocent of the blood uh, of all men uh, because he had, uh, verse 26, wherefore I take you to record this day I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul looked upon himself as a debtor to Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel that he had received, because of the power of the gospel, how it had transformed his life, he felt an obligation to share the gospel with all men. And he felt that until he had shared the gospel with them, that he was sort of responsible, that their blood was upon his hands. But once having shared the gospel, then they were responsible themselves. Now, in the Old Testament, the 18th chapter of Ezekiel, God called Ezekiel to warn the people And he said, if I say unto the wicked, you shall die in your sin, and you warn them not, then they will die in their sin, but their blood will I require at your hand. And if the righteous turn from the righteousness which they have done, and I speak to you to warn the righteous, if you don't warn them, they will die in their sins, but their blood will I require at your hand. So that was God's commission to Ezekiel, but Paul took that himself feeling the responsibility. I am a debtor, he said. Uh, We don't seem to have that same sense of of urgency of sharing the gospel with people. And yet Paul felt that tremendous urgency, and that is the reason why he was probably so tireless in his efforts to share the gospel, because he felt that obligation and responsibility I am responsible to share the gospel with these people. uh, And if I don't, then their blood will be upon my hands. Uh, I will be responsible for their death and eternal damnation. So he was really pushed uh, within to, to share the gospel because he felt that once I've shared it, I have relieved myself from that obligation from that debt. Now they are responsible to either accept or reject. But I have fulfilled my responsibility in witnessing. Now the Lord said to his disciples that they were to go into all the world and they were to preach the gospel to every creature. And he who believed and baptized were baptized would be saved. He that did not believe would be damned. But 
Once we have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have fulfilled our obligation. God doesn't require us to argue people into a faith. God only requires that we share with people the truth of Jesus Christ. What they do with that is their responsibility. My responsibility is to share. Paul, having shared, fulfilled his obligation and responsibility, he said, your blood is on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. And, and that's the, the feeling that Paul had as far as that responsibility to share the truth of Jesus Christ. So he departed from there, and he entered into a certain man's house whose name was Justice, one who worshiped God, and his house was joined hard to the synagogue. That is, it probably shared a common wall with the synagogue, lived right next door to it. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And so the Spirit of God was beginning to do a work there in uh, Corinth. The chief ruler of the synagogue came to a faith with his household and also many people, and they were baptized. And then the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, telling Paul, be not afraid to speak. Hold not your peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. I think that Paul had become a little wary of success, because wherever Paul preached, if many people began to believe, especially of the Greeks, the Jews became jealous and began to stir up all kinds of strife against Paul. Go back to Lystra and to uh, Derby and to Iconium and uh, to these other places, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica. It was the success that brought then the subsequent persecution to the extent that Paul began to be leery of success. As, as a lot of people began to believe and be baptized, he thought, uh-oh, you know, uh, the enemy is going to really strike now. And uh, so as he began to be successful, he probably began to be fearful uh, in the places that he had been before. Uh, he had been stoned, he had been beaten and all. And uh, he, as many people began to believe and were being baptized, the, the, the work was growing, Paul became a little fearful. And so the Lord came to him at night and said, don't be afraid. You speak and hold not your peace because I will be with you and no one's going to lay their hands on you to hurt you. So the promise of the presence of the Lord and in Corinth, the protection that no one will be able to lay their hands on him to hurt him. So the Lord said, For I have many people in this city. As we pointed out this morning, Corinth was probably the most unlikely place 
that you would ever expect there to be successful evangelism. God so often works in the most unlikely places. Some of the places they think, oh, that would be a great place, you know, to go with the gospel, establish the church, and, and it isn't. Some of the places, oh boy, stay away from there. That, that's the last place in the world you know you want to go. And that's the place that God says, I have many people. What we don't realize is that so often when a person is delving into alcohol or to drugs or to these things, that they are trying to fill an emptiness inside. And they are searching for something that they can't quite define. In reality, deep down inside of everyone, there is a thirst for God. As David the psalmist said, my soul thirsteth after thee, O God. And and that's true of every man. God has put that thirst within. In the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul said that God made man, the creature, subject unto emptiness, and that by the design of him who created him. God put that emptiness within so that man would seek after God, search after God, and find God, and find the fulfillment to that emptiness. It was that emptiness that Jesus was addressing in John 7, 37, when on the temple he cried and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That thirst for God. Jesus said, Come to me, drink. You'll be satisfied. You'll find the answer to that thirst. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he put together two very uh, different things, and we think, why would he, uh, you know, put those two things together, a fellow drunk with wine and a fellow filled with the Spirit? What is the relationship? The relationship is the person who who is filled with the Spirit has found what the person is searching after who gets drunk with wine. That fulfillment, uh, it's there in the Spirit, in the life of the Spirit. And so what we look upon as people who are far from the gospel are many times those who are closest to the gospel uh, because uh, they are aware of a need and they are searching to try and fill that need. As I mentioned this morning with the hippies, they were advertising their search. All over their vans they had painted peace and love. And and they were searching for peace and love. And, And that's why they were so attracted to the gospel when it was proclaimed to them the gospel of God's love and the gospel of peace, peace with God through Jesus Christ. So the Lord assured Paul, I've got a lot of people in this wicked city of Corinth. 
And so he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, when Galileo was the deputy of Achaia, he was appointed the deputy of that region, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and they brought him to the judgment seat. There in the ruins of Corinth today, you can go to the judgment seat where Paul was brought by the Jews to face the governor, Galileo. And when, and they accused Paul before him, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul was about to answer for himself. He was about to open his mouth. And Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. In other words, if this guy had really done something wicked, something wrong, then reason says that I should listen to you and I should, you know, judge in this matter. But if it's just a question of words and names and of your law, you look after it, for I will not be a judge in such matters. They really didn't have any legal case against Paul. It was just a matter of, of doctrinal beliefs. And so Galileo refused to uh, have anything to do with it. And so the lectors, who uh, were sort of the bailiffs, drove them from the judgment seat. They probably were yelling and insisting that he uh, do something about it. And so uh, the uh, bailiffs that were there uh, just drove them out. Uh, and then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, who was the chief ruler, probably took over when Crispus believed in Christ, um, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat, and Galileo cared for none of those things. Now, Galileo has gotten a bad rap because it says, well, here he, you know, was just, didn't care, you know, the guy beaten right there in front of him, and he didn't care for any of those things. Uh, he doesn't deserve the bad rap. According to his brother Seneca, he was the kindest man who ever lived. He said if uh, anyone deserves uh, to be praised for their kindness and their uh, generosity, it is Galileo. What is being said here is that he didn't care for the issues that they were bringing before him. Uh, they were insisting on it. And thus he had to drive them out from the judgment seat. Now Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren, and he sailed from there to Syria, and he took with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria. Now Centria was the port. Of, Caesarea, of, of uh, Corinth, for he had a vow. So he's leaving to go back 
to Jerusalem, to Syria, to, and then on to Jerusalem. But he took this vow. It was the vow of the Nazarite. In Numbers chapter 6, it gives the rules for the vow of a Nazarite. When you wanted to show a special appreciation to God, thanksgiving for the blessings of God, you would shave your head, and for a period of 30 days or whatever you had prescribed, you would not eat meat or you would not drink wine. And during this time, it was a time of commitment, full commitment to the Lord. The vow of the Nazarite was the vow of full commitment. At the end of the 30 days, you would shave your head again, or 60 days or whatever time that you had allotted. You would shave your head again, and then you would burn on the altar the hair that had grown on your head during that period of time. And, and it was just a, a way of, of saying, I'm consecrating my life to the Lord for three months, six months, 30 days, whatever time. So Paul took this vow of consecration, the Nazarite vow. When he came to Jerusalem, he was planning to fulfill that vow, shave his head again and burn the hair on the altar. It's interesting that uh, there was still, even with Paul, who was so freed from the law, yet still that tradition and that uh, obedience to uh, some of the traditional aspects of the law. Uh, this vow of consecration is great. Now, you remember the story of Samson in the Old Testament, how the angel instructed his mother, that he was not to have a razor come to his head all of the days of his life. And during the time that she was carrying him, she was not to eat meat or drink any wine or strong drink because he shall be a Nazarite unto God from his birth. So he was to be consecrated to God throughout his lifetime. And when, of course, his head, his hair was cut, he became weak as other men because his commitment to the Lord was broken. When a person is totally committed to God, they are people of strength. They are people of power. The power of commitment is tremendous. The reason why communism was able to make such great strides is the commitment that people had to communism. Uh, the reason why the tree huggers are able to do so much is they are committed to their cause. They're in love with those trees. <laughs> and they're committed to their cause. And, and thus, uh, they're able to uh, do an awful lot because of their commitment. You know, they chain themselves to the trees that so the... Foresters can't cut them down, you know, and, and they're committed. And there's a lot to be said for commitment. And Paul, then as they left Corinth, took this vow of the Nazarite, shaved his head. And 
When they came to Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to stay longer with them, he consented not. So Paul's first ministry, they're in the synagogue of Ephesus. They were interested. They wanted him to stay longer, but he was determined to get to Jerusalem for the feast. So he uh, consented not. But he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that's coming in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you if God wills. Aha, there it is. If God wills. James sort of rebukes the people for saying, well, we're going to do this and this, and tomorrow we'll do this and this. And he said, it would be better for you to say, if the Lord wills, this is what we're going to do. And, and that should always be uh, the little uh, criteria, if the Lord wills. Now, this is what we're planning to do. This is what we will do if it is the Lord's will. But, it, but it's important to, to put that there. And Paul says, if it's the Lord's will, I will come back to you again if the Lord wills. And he, he was living by the will of God. As we should be living by the will of God. And seeking God's will in all of our activities. So, uh, promise to come back if the Lord wills. And so he sailed from Ephesus. Now, when he had landed at Caesarea, so sailed from Ephesus to Caesarea. That's, of course, we know Caesarea there on the coast. Uh, And he had gone up and saluted the church or greeted the church, went to the celebration there at the temple for the feast, And then he went to Antioch. Now, what happened? We don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, it's covering a period of time, and it's covering 1,500 miles. Now, certainly a lot of things must have happened in, in that time and on that journey of which we don't know anything. It will be interesting to get when we get to heaven and we have just a lot of time to learn a lot of things, uh, to find out just what exciting things happened to Paul uh, on this particular journey back to Jerusalem. Uh, the events and all that took place. And, and then, of course, as he, uh, and, you know, it doesn't, he wasn't very popular with the church in Jerusalem. Uh, whenever he would get there, it seems like Paul had a way of stirring people up uh, and, and getting them all rankled. And so uh, it, it's sort of sad when uh, we can live in peaceful coexistence with a world that is opposed to the righteous demands of Jesus Christ. And, and the church is not strong when it uh, is living in a peaceful coexistence in a sinful society. 
Uh, you are the salt of the earth. And you put salt on a open sore and it smarts. But if the salt has lost its savor, it's really good for nothing. And, and thus, uh, the church is never at peace with sin. So, after he had spent some time in Antioch, this is Paul's home church. Uh, he began his first missionary journey from Antioch. This is his home church. So he spent some time there. Didn't spend much time in Jerusalem, but spent some time there. He departed, and he went back over all the country of Galatia. That is the area where Paul went on both his first and second missionary journeys. Uh, the area of uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and so forth, that whole area is called Galatia. And uh, so he went back through uh, the country of Galatia and Pergia, in that order, strengthening all of the disciples, going to the disciples, and now ministering to them, encouraging them, strengthening them. Now, back at Ephesus, there was a certain Jew named Apollos, who was born at Alexandria which was one of the cultural centers of the ancient world, the second largest city, and uh, a place of uh, culture and education. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. That is, he knew the scriptures. He had a great working knowledge of the scriptures. And he came to Ephesus, now, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. The term the way is a term that was used for Christians in the early um, birth of the church and the early years of the church. They called the Christians the people of the way. It was a reference to the way of life that Christians lived. Back in the ninth chapter, when Paul was commissioned and uh, empowered by the high priest to go to Damascus to hail into prison all who were of the way, that is, the way of Christianity or the way of the Lord, the people who were living this way of life, uh, in uh, the book of Acts, the Christians were referred to as the people of the way much more than they were referred to as Christians. That was sort of a uh, moniker that was put upon them by the world because they were living like Christ. They were Christ-like. And thus that was sort of the Jesus people uh, media uh, thing that was put upon them but they were called the people of the way. It's a glorious way of life, uh, living for Jesus Christ. And so uh, that was what they were referred to. So this, that's all he knew was the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, this fellow was eloquent. He was well-versed in the scriptures. 
And he was fervent in his spirit. And he spoke and he taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. John said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. There's one coming after me, mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He, he didn't know the fullness of the Spirit. He just knew the, the, the preaching of repentance from sins. Baptism. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, laying aside the first principles of the doctrines of Christ, the repentance from dead works, baptism, laying on of hands, let's go on into maturity. Let's develop into a maturity in Christ. Now, Apollos didn't know the life and the walk of the Spirit. All he knew was the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, the repentance from dead works. But he didn't really know what it was to walk in the Spirit. It's interesting that this was sort of reflected then in the lives of the believers, for in the next chapter, as Paul comes to Ephesus, there's something missing in their Christian experience that Paul quickly discerns. Perhaps a lack of love, perhaps a lack of joy, perhaps a lack of excitement. Because these are things that transpire when a person is filled with the Spirit. There's joy, there's love, there's excitement about the things of the Lord. And they, they seem to lack this. And so Paul immediately said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? But we'll get that next week. But it's a uh, thing that uh, Apollos didn't know about the Holy Spirit. And so he only instructed them in, in the first principles. He wasn't able to take them on into a real walk in the Spirit, real perfection in the Christian life. So he began, he came to Ephesus and began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they invited him over to their house, and they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. They, they, they said, look, you know, Jesus rose again, and he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were expounding to him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass on over to Achaia, uh, that is the area of Corinth, the southern area of Greece, the brethren wrote letters with him, uh, exhorting the disciples to receive him, that is the disciples in Corinth, and of course, uh, Priscilla and Aquila had come from Corinth, so he announced his intentions to move on to Corinth. And so uh, they wrote letters to the disciples there and encouraged them to receive Apollos, who when he was come to Corinth, he helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing them by the scriptures that Jesus 
was the Messiah. Great. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was showing them, and that publicly, through the scriptures, that Jesus was the Messiah. An interesting sidelight on Apollos. When he got to Corinth and began to preach, because of the fact that he was well-versed in the scriptures, he was fervent in the spirit, and there were many in Corinth who were attracted to Apollos. And so there actually developed little factions and, and sort of Apollos followers, fans of Apollos. And so in Corinth, there were those that said, well, we are of Peter, indicating that Peter had probably come to Corinth in the interim between Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Some were saying, we're of Apollos. And others were saying, we're of Paul. And others were saying, we're Presbyterians. <laughs> and some were saying, we're Baptists. And we're Methodists. No, but uh, it's that idea of sort of building little enclosures and building walls up around yourself and identifying yourself with a particular doctrinal persuasion or a particular popular leader. And, and so you begin to divide the body of Christ. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, rebuked them for that factionalism. He said that that was carnal. It was a mark of carnality. It was a mark of spiritual infancy that they couldn't just receive all men, glean from all, and be committed unto Jesus Christ. Not unto man or any particular man, but their commitment was to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul rebuked them. Paul said that there at Corinth, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. He who plants is nothing. He who waters is nothing. The one we should be attracted to and drawn to is God, the one who gets and should receive the glory, for he is the one who gives the increase. So uh, Apollos had his ministry in Corinth following Paul's, and uh, he was mighty in the scriptures and a good man. I, I'm anxious to meet Apollos, and uh, I, I, I'm attracted to him. But I'm not of Apollos. I'm of Jesus Christ. And <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that here in Ephesus, Apollos planted, and in the 19th chapter when Paul comes along, he waters. Sometimes God uses us to plant the seed. Sometimes God uses us to water the seed. In one place we might be planting, in another place we might be watering. Doesn't make any difference who planted or who watered. 
The important thing is that it is God who works giving the increase. And so to God be the glory, great things he hath done. Don't get tied up with a man in a personality, but get wrapped up in Jesus Christ and you'll be all right. Let's turn to the 19th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Last week, we saw the eloquent ministry of a man by the name of Apollos who had come to Ephesus and was there in the synagogue teaching diligently the things of the Lord, but limited in his knowledge, only knowing the baptism of John. Paul's friends, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and explained to him more fully the scriptures and what God had done through Jesus Christ. So Apollos left Ephesus and he was commended to the saints that were in Corinth because Aquila and Priscilla had been with Paul in Corinth They knew the saints that were there, and so Apollos was sent on. And there in Corinth, he mightily convinced the Jews publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, in the meantime, Paul had passed through the upper coast and had come to Ephesus, and he found there certain disciples And he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there there be any Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about. We haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some who prefer the translation, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul asked them if They had received the Holy Spirit since they believed. The Greek language will support either translation. Now, on the King James translators, they had the best Greek scholars in the world at that time who were translating, and they chose the translation, since you believe. There are those who deny the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate experience from salvation. And so to support that position, it is necessary that they translate it, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And basically that is why they have chosen that particular translation because it then is in keeping with uh, their theological position. However, the scripture does teach that there is an experience of empowering by the Holy Spirit that is separate from conversion and subsequent to conversion. In the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, you will remember that Jesus said to his disciples, Now you wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John indeed did baptize you with water unto repentance, but you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit 
in a few days. Now, this is after Jesus had breathed on them in John 20 and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, they could not receive the Holy Spirit until this gift of the Holy Spirit, until he had ascended into heaven. But the Holy Spirit had always been operating from the beginning. We find in the beginning of Genesis that the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And throughout the Old Testament, we find those that were filled with the Spirit and exercised the gifts of prophecy and other gifts of the Spirit in the Old Testament time. But there was the promise that the day would come when God would pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. This is the promise that Jesus had been talking to the disciples about, and he said, it's about time that God is going to fulfill that promise, so you wait in Jerusalem until you receive this promise. For John indeed baptized you with water. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And so in the early part of the book of Acts, we find as they were there in Jerusalem waiting, the Holy Spirit came upon them and the church began its ministry of witnessing for Christ in Jerusalem. We saw how it spread then into Judea as the result of persecution. And how then that Philip went to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, when Philip went to Samaria and preached Christ, many of the Samaritans believed and were baptized. They saw the miracles that Philip did. They were convinced of the message of Philip, that Jesus was the Messiah, as Mark's gospel tells us, they went everywhere preaching the word, the Holy Spirit working with them with signs following, confirming the word that they spoke. And so with Philip in Samaria, as he preached Christ unto them, there were many miracles that were wrought by God through Philip. And thus many of the Samaritans believed and were baptized. Now, if a person believes and is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes into their lives. You cannot call Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul said to the Corinthians, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you? Paul said to the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. So, There is the work of the Holy Spirit prior to our conversion. He's with us, convicting us of our sin, drawing us to Jesus Christ. When we obey the wooing of the Spirit and we receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to indwell us. And he is there within us, giving us really that transforming power as he conforms us into the image of Jesus. But here Jesus said you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses unto me. And the witness is to go throughout all the world. Now Paul is in the uttermost parts of the earth as far as Jerusalem is concerned. He's there in Ephesus as a witness for Jesus Christ. And uh, as he comes to these believers that are there, 
There seems to be a lack in their experience. Now, getting back, though, to Samaria. When Philip preached in Samaria, they believed him were baptized, which means that the Spirit was dwelling in them. But when the church in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had also received the gospel, they sent unto them Peter and John, for as yet the Spirit had not come upon them. And when Peter and John came, they laid hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And that was when Simon the sorcerer saw that through the laying on of their hands, the Spirit was imparted. He wanted to buy that power so that he could duplicate what they were doing. And you remember Peter rebuked him and said, your money perish with you because you think that the gifts of God can be bought. But their receiving of the Holy Spirit was a separate experience to their conversion. They believed and were baptized, but then they were not they did not receive this coming upon this happy experience until Paul, I mean, until Peter and John came down. When Paul was then converted on the road to Damascus, he said, what would you have me to do, Lord, in responding to Jesus who had said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What would you have me to do, Lord? Now, the scripture tells us that you can't call Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there was that conversion. The moment he acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there is that conversion. And yet, when Paul came to Damascus, blinded as the result of his experience there on the Damascus road, God spoke to a certain disciple named Ananias and told him to go uh, to the street straight and inquire uh, for Saul because he's praying. And Ananias objected, Lord, I've heard about this guy. He's wrecking havoc to the church. He's come here to arrest those that are calling upon your name. And uh, he's more or less saying, Lord, are you sure? And uh, the Lord said, he's a chosen vessel unto me. I'm going to show him the thing he's going to have to suffer for my sake. So he came to Paul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to you that I might pray for you that you might receive your sight and the Holy Spirit. So he prayed for Paul and Paul received his sight, and he received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he began then his ministry right there in Damascus. So it was separate to and subsequent to his conversion. Now here in Acts, when Paul said to the Ephesians, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed, or when you believed, really makes no difference. Because Paul is acknowledging that there is a relationship with the Holy Spirit that when they believed, did you not receive him? Or since you believed, have you received him? Paul is intimating that you can believe and yet not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or by the other translation, you can receive even as he did, Jesus as your Lord, but be filled with the Holy Spirit at a later time. So why Paul asks the question is probably an observation of a lack of fervency 
a lack of love, a lack of passion, a lack of fire. There are many Christians who are lacking the real dynamic of the spirit in their lives. They're sort of ho-hum Christians. Uh, there's no real fire. There's no real dynamic. Uh, yes, I'm a Christian. Of course, I believe in Jesus. But it doesn't go beyond that. There's no real enthusiasm for the things of the Spirit, for the things of the Lord. And, and perhaps Paul observed that there was sort of a spiritual deadness. And so his question Have you received the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is a dynamic, it's a power, it's it's something that makes us alive to the things of the Spirit, brings a fire and an enthusiasm. And so did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul's question was, well, then how were you baptized? Now, Jesus said to his disciples that they were to go and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Well, how were you baptized? Didn't they baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How are you baptized? Uh, There is a group uh, that are known as the Jesus-only people. And uh, they say that you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And that if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it isn't really a valid baptism. That uh, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. Uh, for that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, it's only Jesus. And so they're called the Jesus-only sect. And um, they have difficulty if you talk with them and ask them, um, who was Jesus addressing when on the cross he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at the baptism of Jesus, who was it that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Hear ye him. Uh, Was he a ventriloquist, you know, did he? uh, And they have difficulty with some of those things. But evidently, you see, the question of Paul would indicate that it was the common practice to obey the commandment of Jesus in baptizing people, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, how are you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And of course, Apollos was the one who brought the Word of God to them, and he knew only John's baptism until Priscilla and Aquila had instructed him more fully. return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on baptism and we do hope you'll make plans to join us but right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message simply order Acts 18 through 19 when visiting the wordfortoday.org 
And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Now may the Lord be with you and bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May your heart be filled with his love. May you walk in the Spirit, and may you be strengthened by the work of His Holy Spirit in your inner man. May you be increased in knowledge and understanding of His Word and of His will and of His purposes for your life, that you might walk before the Lord in a way that is pleasing unto Him. And may God increase your faith and your trust. May He work in your life in a very beautiful way, as he nurtures you and as he leads you into that path of fellowship with himself. May your life be enriched in all things in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord and the blessings of the Lord be upon you while we are absent from each other until we are brought back together again to continue our fellowship and our growing together in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. As Easter is approaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is on the hearts of Christians everywhere and how they might witness this beautiful story to their loved ones. With this in mind, The Word for Today would like to present a special MP3 entitled My Redeemer Lives that includes 14 reassuring messages to answer the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a life that should bring hope to everyone. Also included is a special presentation of the crucifixion from a doctor's perspective, as well as a powerful salvation message shared by Pastor Chuck. And when you order My Redeemer Lives MP3, we'll include a free CD by Pastor Chuck to witness to your loved ones that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This CD, entitled A Risen Love, clearly presents the evidence to help others make a decision that will impact their immediate and eternal future. For more information, contact The Word for Today at 800-272-9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.